Welcome to Latinos Who Tech. My name is Hugo Castellanos. I'm an engineer and I work in Silicon Valley. I am originally from Caracas, Venezuela, and I've been calling the U.S. home for the last 20 years. When it comes to Latinos in the U.S., we are 60 million people, but we're only 3% of the workers in science or engineering. As a professional in Silicon Valley, I've had the opportunity to meet some remarkable professionals that work in the tech industry, Latinos like me. With this podcast, I want to bring you a collection of their stories and how they got a job in tech in the first place. And if they had to start all over again, what would they do differently? I want to share with you career advice on how to get a job in tech, how to deal with imposter syndrome, how to find your tribe when you're the only one in the room. This is Latinos Who Tech. This episode of Latinos Who Tech is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the world's premium platform for audiobooks with over 150,000 titles. If you're like me, you're passionate about learning new things, but finding the time to read may be difficult. Audiobooks are a great alternative. You can get a free 30-day trial plus a free audiobook by going to audibletrial.com slash latinos. Go and support them since they support us. Thank you. Diego, welcome to Latinos in Tech. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited for this conversation. And uh, we're going to be doing the English version uh, today because the uh, previous one, we talked about that time that you met Warren Buffett and uh, some you know, investing advice and how you got into consulting. So I'm wondering if we can talk today about uh, cybersecurity it's and uh, how to get a career in it. Yeah, it's very exciting. So uh, just for the record, I've been doing cybersecurity for the past six and a half years. Um, and I typically work out of Chicago. That's technically where my office is at. But I currently am currently staffing a few projects here in the Silicon Valley area. So um, it's a very interesting field. And I'm really excited to share some insights and some some tips of how to get involved in that field. Awesome. So maybe you can start by telling me your story. I mean, how how do you get to cyber? How do you get to uh, the U.S.? I mean, how do you get here? Definitely. So uh, I was originally born in Caracas, Venezuela. And as some of you know, you know, Caracas, Venezuela itself went through, has been going through a lot of difficult times. So a lot of people left the country over the years. Um, so I moved into Nebraska where I went to school and, you know, through my time in school, I, I'm a very curious person. I like learning about different things. Um, you know, at the beginning of my, my career or my, my college career, I basically wanted to do marketing. So I did an internship with Nike which I realized that marketing wasn't for me. You know, then at some point, I, somebody told me about investment banking. So I was like, well, maybe I should do finance. So I went and did an internship in New York for, for a bank and quickly realized that, you know, it wasn't for me. And then slowly after sort of finishing that internship, I kind of sat down and I said, okay, what are the things that I really like? Like, what is exactly, like, forget about money. What are the things that I enjoy doing myself? And I quickly draw down a few things, including soccer, right? <laughs> soccer, technology, you know, all these things. And I started figuring out, okay, from these things, what are the things that I can realistically go into and actually enjoy doing on a day-to-day -day basis? And technology came across me as a, a way, as something that I really enjoy dealing with. Like I, I'm, I'm the type of person who likes, you know, playing on my phone or going to my computer, you know, playing with um, IoT devices, like all these crazy things that I, I really like. 
Um, so I felt it was a good field to, to go into. So from trying marketing, investment banking sort of landed in this technology field, which is highly demanding because it's constantly changing, which is really what makes me excited about it. You know, you have, you know, fields without any disrespect that are very stagnant, you know, like accounting, for example, the rules are the rules. And, you know, at some point you learn them all and you pretty much apply what you know, and that's sort of what it is. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, in cybersecurity or in technology, you know, every day there's a new challenge and you know, something that comes out that you have to learn. So it keeps it very exciting for, for me and for a lot of people in the field. And that's sort of what drew my attention into the field. So it's, it's very awesome. exciting. So so maybe you can share with me a bit about cybersecurity and, you know, what is it anyway? Like, uh, because when I, th- when I hear cybersecurity, I picture this, uh, I have this vision of, uh, a, you know, leaks. And, uh, oh, yeah, and I feel like it's more frequent nowadays that every other week I see XYZ company, uh, there's 400,000 records leaked of customers and their social security numbers and stuff like that. So, like, uh, but maybe you can, you can share with me, like, uh, what's the day-to-day of uh, somebody that works yeah. in your field? I'll start with a quick example, right? If I tell you, can you think of what are the assets of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, for example? Most people can think of gold, right? You think of the physical gold. Those are the assets. We got to protect them. Yeah, yeah. We, we also die hard three you know, at, <laughs> uh, at some point. Right. So most people think of physical things. But, you know, we're in a digital world where most of the assets are really digital, right? You have information that includes, you know, social security numbers, credit card information, potentially information that involves uh, patterns of customers, which are, you know, protected by, by a company who put them together. Um, or intellectual property rights. But anyways, those are really what we consider assets in terms of my field. And, you know, when the internet was created, it basically opened a way for people to get unauthorized access of those assets, basically. And that's really when this field was born. Basically, in in a pretty easy way to to understand, or in in a way to understand this, you got to think of a house, okay? Let's say you have a house, And inside that house, you have a bunch of papers that describe your life. It has your social security number. It has you know all your credit card information, how many kids you have, all your healthcare information. Think about it like as a physical paper inside that house. Mm-hmm. And you know, in your house, you have one or maybe two doors to get in. You have a garage. You have windows. In the lower floor, maybe if you have two floors, you have windows also on the on the higher floor. And at some point you say, okay, how am I going to protect all these physical papers that I have here in my living room from somebody coming in and grabbing them and leaving? Like, what, what do I do? Financially speaking, you can't install a security guard on every window and every door, or you can't install cameras everywhere, or, or, or you know, you can have a police department next to you, you know, it's just not financially feasible, right? So you got to make a decision and say, well, I have two doors here and there. I have these windows that are, you know, maybe one of them is closer to the street. So I want to strategically place a camera or an alarm or things in, in places where I think it's more likely that they're going to come in. And if they do, and I can detect somebody coming in, I want to basically have a way of responding and responding to the attacker to make sure that either the person gets caught or maybe I reduce the amount of papers that I take away from my house. So that example, it's essentially what cybersecurity is. We essentially do this for companies. We help them protect their house in a way, and we help them build, you know, either technologies, processes, mechanisms, ways of protecting their assets. So, you know, that's sort of a good way of thinking about cybersecurity. You know, you can't really protect everything, but you do have to strategically think of what are the 
the ways that somebody can get a hold of your assets and how can you prevent that or detect that if, if it ever happens. So got it. No, thank you for that. So it's like uh, I, I love the fact that you mentioned the the return of investment. So if it makes sense to protect, like uh, I have a safe in my house and I have my passport and I have, uh, you know, like my car deed there. Um, I don't keep my receipt for my laptop there because I don't need it, <laughs> right? So it's like a, keep something that makes sense there, right? Like a, it's small, so you need to be strategic. What are you going to pick? Uh, does it make sense to protect anyway? Uh, so no, that's awesome. Exactly. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, like, uh, you know, because you, you work in the cyberspace and, and you are a consultant. So so what do you go to school for? Yeah, it's, so that's an interesting fact about myself. So you know, I, I actually, when I went to school, because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, I, I did two majors. So I studied finance. That was kind of the, the main major. At the same time, because I was so passionate about technology, I also studied management information systems. Mm -hmm. So the great thing about management information systems, which in some schools, they call it differently. For example, I've seen schools that call it business intelligence analytics. There's different names. But overall, what it is, it's it's basically a way for people to understand at a high level how technology works, what's an application, what's a database, what's an operating system, you know, how does it talk to each other, like all the basics, mm -hmm. and which gives you a pretty good, pretty good segue into cybersecurity. Because you know, in cybersecurity, the problem with the, the there's a re, there's a problem, a big problem with cybersecurity, which is that you need a, a, a number of skills to be successful. It's not just knowing programming. It's not just knowing how an application works. Got it's not it. just knowing what's an architecture. You kind of have to know a little bit about everything to really know what you're doing. Got it. So a lot of our audience are, you know, like young professionals or college students. So I'm wondering like, what are those key skills, those key competencies that people need to build? Yeah, I think obviously the, the, the most basic one is, you know, programming, right? So there's a number, there's a lot of programming languages out there, you know, C, C++, you know, Python, like you can name it. There's, there's a, a lot of them out there. So having an understanding of how to, how to do programming, how to configure something, that's a pretty basic thing that you need. You don't have to be an expert, especially when you start in this field, but you have mm -hmm. to know at least the, ba the basics behind that. I think that's an important uh, one to have. At the same time, uh, it, it, you should also know a lot about architecture. Right. It's it's not just knowing how to build an application and make it work. It's also understanding, you know, where do you want to place the database so it's safe? You know, where how do you want that application to connect to the network so it sends data to other applications? Mm. You know, all those things are important because if you make a mistake when you're designing something and you don't understand the bigger picture, that's typically how hacks hacks or hackers can get into your system and steal data. So it is a combination of programming language, understanding basically the architecture of technology, you know, understanding a little bit about networking, right? Like how do how does data gets transmitted from point A to point B? You know, anything that involves dealing with data that is stored or transmitted through a network. Any anything, whether it's programming or just understanding the concepts, I think are important for, for somebody who's trying to go into the cybersecurity space. Got it. What is the data warehousing? Yeah. So, you know, what, what, what you, you'll see is that initially you, you have something called a database, right? Let me start there so people understand. Mm -hmm. So a database, you, you start storing data. A lot of times it's historical, right? Based on the date that you change something and so forth. But with the need of storing larger amounts of data, 
you know, at some point data warehouses were created, which was basically bigger databases with more processing capabilities where you can look for things, look for patterns, um, you know, so you can think of a database being like a smaller uh, thing or a thing where you can store data, a data warehouse being a bigger one where you can do multiple things, not just store data, but there's other capabilities. And now you have big data environments like Hadoop or, or some of the more, I guess, famous ones today where you can only store data, but you can also run certain analytics to find patterns in that data. So we've kind of evolved from little things to this gigantic big data environment that now companies are using and just creates a lot of challenges for, for our field because now you have to worry about much more, right? Like if you have a big data environment, how do you know where your data is, right? Because the data could be in multiple places. How do you know right. that privacy is, be, like how do, if, if you have to adhere to the privacy rules in Europe, how do you know that the data in the different nodes of the big data environment is protected? Like you, sometimes you don't know. Right. So it creates, it's been becoming more complex over time. And, and that's, it's a challenge. And sometimes it's also exciting because it creates other opportunities for people. Yeah. And because so. there's this uh, whole technology stack of different, uh, not only applications, but also services and companies that play in this space. And um, actually I have a friend, uh, he's a mentor too, the, he uh, from Claudera. And he, he was trying to explain to me this analogy of uh, this you know, uh, what's the difference between big data and, you know, what I have in my hard drive kind of thing. So it's like, uh, Hugo, imagine that, you know, you have a storage. Imagine you have a receipt in your wallet and you're storing it. You're storing data in your wallet. But then the next level, you do like a data warehouse. That's your Quicken budget in your computer with all the receipts and all the expenses that you have. Now, if you go somewhere uh, like Hadoop, you know, like a big data environment, I can run a query on all your stored data and figure out how old you are, if you're going to buy a car in the next uh, six months or not, and uh, maybe who you vote for. Exactly. Depending on your spending patterns, you know, so it's like, uh, how do you make those models, uh, you know, like the power of big data, you know, which is something that, uh, you know, it goes beyond just being a large quantity of numbers is having a large quantity of data and also being able to run uh, queries on it, actually, it's, like a exactly. man manipulate the data. Yeah, I mean, it's a way of being able to access patterns on the data faster than just going into a database and running a bunch of algorithms or, or queries. So, yeah, it, it has changed the landscape for a lot of companies. They can quickly now make decisions. You know, you'll see any major company today has a big data environment. And you're totally right. I mean, it, it is very important. And it, 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 they can basically figure out a lot of things about customer behavior by looking at patterns and, and their big data environments. Yeah, there's that story of Target that they can figure out, depending on what you buy, if you're pregnant or not. Yes. And that they'll they'll target people's uh, mailers, you know, so the thing they get in the mail with coupons. And it's it's happened that, uh, you know, that somebody, you know, this guy opens the, the mail and is like, uh, wait, what am I getting stuff for diapers? And uh, honey, do we have to talk? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no. And, you know, give you, to give you an example, this obviously doesn't fall necessarily on the cyber security space, but it is something that we are aware of. Um, companies today, for example, Walmart, um, mm. they're pretty good at analyzing this data. And if you go to a Walmart store and you walk in, you know, based on the credit card information that people are spending, they've realized that people between 22 and 28, you know, kind of that range, um, has spent typically go and buy beer and milk 
or and diapers. Typically, these are people that recently got married, they have young kids, right? So based on this data, basically what Walmart has done is that they actually now place the beer, the diapers, and the milk really far away from each other in their stores because they know that one, these people are young professionals who just started. Two, they know that by placing these items far away from each other, the person will walk longer and there's a chance that as they walk longer to grab the diapers and the beer, even though it's a weird relationship, they'll grab our products. However, how do you know that people buy beer and diapers? There's no way you would know that unless you study the data. That, that's what the data was, was telling them. So there are easy ways of us, as like without looking at the data, making associations like, well, if somebody mm -hmm. buys X, most likely they're gonna buy cheese. So let's place the X and the cheese separately. We kind of know that, right? Yeah. Let's make that assumption. But unless you study big data environments, you wouldn't know that when people buy beer, they're very likely to buy diapers because these are, again, the 22 to 28 uh, young professionals. So that's why it's so important because it, it can really change decisions and ways that you do things. Yeah. And sometimes I, it's not obvious. And, and I, I wonder what, uh, you know, places like uh, Safeway or Walmart like know about me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. because uh, they give you that membership card, right? And that <laughs> membership card is to give you points, right? It was only to give you points and give you that... Uh, 0.1% discount and stuff. So it's not to gather your data at all, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I, yeah, I mean, that's how they figure it out, you know, it's like, a, and, you know, it's not to sound like, a, okay, there's no like a tinfoil hat here. It's not, I'm not talking about that, but it's a tool, right? It's a, that's, that's the heart of it. I mean, we're in business and we aim to make money. <laughs> exactly. So. Exactly. No, and, and it's also helpful, right? Like, I mean, you also want companies to understand what are the things you're looking for, so they can also change their mm -hmm. behavior. So the products they're selling, if they're seeing, for example, that today people are buying more organics products, maybe that's a, something that they need to consider. Maybe they need to start buying more organic or selling more organic products in their stores, right? So it also helps companies change the things that they do or the things that they sell because they're, they're seeing patterns on, on, on certain people buying certain things. So it also helps, I mean, I'll be happy if companies, or in this case, uh, grocery stores sell more, more organic products, but you know, it's just you can only see these things if you look at data. Right. It's like uh, there was this big uh, thing about the keto diet eh, over 2018, 2019. And so this like a uh, low carb, high fat, mother protein thing. And now I go to Safeway and I see keto snacks or like <laughs> keto certified stuff. I'm like, whoa, okay, uh, that took a while <laughs> to close the loop. Uh, almost awesome. But um, back to cybersecurity, though. So key competencies, you mentioned programming, uh, you mentioned, you know, being familiar with uh, big data, like manipulating stuff. Um, what about soft skills? Yeah, no, I'm wondering, it, like, uh, how does that fall, like, in cybersecurity? Because uh, I have this vision of a bunch of people coding, these, like, uh, white hat hackers trying to break into stuff. But it's more than that, right? It's, it's definitely more than that. So you certainly need the people that are sitting in the room facing their computers looking for patterns in the data you need those people right to deal with a potential attack right how do you detect these attacks you need people sitting in and looking at these things or people who do understand ai or artificial intelligence and can create algorithms to find these things and all that but you also need soft skills because you know at the end of the day um, companies for example in my area of cyber security i do cyber security strategy so I'm not so much focused on verticals of cybersecurity. Like I'm not the person that's sitting on a computer monitoring for threats. I'm not the person that it's detecting a, th a threat and it's starting a communication channel or opening an incident. I'm the person who comes into a company and actually helps you create a strategy. Like you need to have a cybersecurity program. You need to have a, a cybersecurity awareness campaign. You need to have detection tools. 
And, you know, companies typically have a limited budget. You know, a company can say, hey, look, this year we just want to spend a million dollars in anything that has to do with information technology. You know, where can we spend our money? And that's when I come in. That's when I say, look, these are the 10 things that people in your industry are doing. You only have this amount of money. Maybe you should consider investing in these five because those are the ones that are going to give you the biggest ROI, whether it's protecting your data better, whether it's, you know, finding better patterns in the data, making better decisions uh, and so forth. So I'm more on the strategy side where I look at everything horizontally. But there are these verticals that, you know, you can specialize on that are also very important and we need them because that's really how our field works. So it's interesting just from from any from any angle you look at it, there's always something you can do. Um, but in terms of soft skills, just to answer your question, you know, you need people that are the most important thing you need in cybersecurity are be having the ability to solve problems. That's really, and I don't know if that's technically a soft skill, but I consider it to be a soft skill because you don't always have the answer. It's not like a virus, you know, there's something called zero day vulnerability, things that you're being faced with for the first time. Mm -hmm. And you have to make decisions quickly on the spot. So having, you know, having a way in your brain to make decisions on the spot based on things that you're seeing, that's one of the most important skills. It's, you can be the best programmer in the world. You can be the best person at you know, following up with things, but you have to know how to put everything together and how to create you know, a, a plan that works for a company. So you know, I think to me, that's one of the most important skills, being able to solve problems on the spot. You know? So how, how do you prepare yourself for that? Well, you go through. <laughs> you, you do a lot of problems <laughs> there and, is... you, and, and you solve a lot of puzzles. You know, the, so it's like uh, people love to hate on video games because, uh, oh, yeah, you're wasting your time. And I'm like, they help me think faster you know, because I have to make decisions quickly, hand-eye coordination, all that stuff. Uh, things like uh, taking care of yourself, like working out. Exactly. You know, like actually like... Uh, Everything that you can do to keep the, this uh, thing inside your head healthy, no, that's a fair game, I think. No, exactly. And, you know, in, in more in the cyberspace, um, a good example of how to prepare for these type of things are our labs, right? So there are a lot of schools that have cybersecurity labs where you go, in through, you go through scenarios, right? They'll throw at you like different scenarios of an attack and then you have to be on the spot making decisions. These are things that you maybe, maybe it's the first time you're seeing them. They're fake. But at the same time, it could happen to you in the real world. So the best way to be good at solving problems in our space is to potentially be trained in one of these labs, right? And figuring out, okay, I'm being attacked. I'm seeing this pattern, these servers. Maybe I should shut down half of the company and operate on the other half of the servers. So, so the best way of solving problems is basically going into labs and actually seeing things in a test um, scenario or a sandbox environment type of thing. But, you know, it's a skill that takes some time to develop. So it's not going to happen overnight. No, definitely, definitely. And, and I see that going to the lab and running tests on attacks and actually simulating attacks. I see that as going to the gym, if you will. Like you're preparing for when you really have to do the thing. Um, any any projects that you're proud of? You know, things that you can share with us. You know, like uh, obviously, you know, nothing confidential. But uh, I'm curious to hear maybe like a project that you delivered you're proud of, or maybe a particular cyber attack you found really enlightening. Like uh, anything you can share on that? Yeah. So you know, obviously, without giving any names, you know, I've been doing a lot of work here in Silicon Valley, but 
I think one of the big, better, or I guess one of the best examples of a good project that I had that I think I always kind of give as an example is a project that I had with a pretty well-known institution in the United States where essentially they were on staff. They have no budget to deal with these things. They have no technology, but they had a lot of sensitive information. They have a lot of intellectual property, a lot of research, a lot of things that if not protected, basically could be complete basically could bring this institution down, right? You can take out their name, their their business, everything. So with a limited budget and with all the constraints that we had, we basically sat down with the CIO and the CISO, right? We worked with them for about four months, trying to come up with a way of making their institution safer with the limited things that they had. And it was, it was very, very, very actually... Um, rewarding because after you know after the three months we basically put together this we call it the five-year roadmap we said look mm. we know you're limited in money we know you're limited in resources but if you follow this five-year program this is where you're going to be in five years right so obviously this happened a while ago and you know after five years we kind of look back and say did it work was our advice accurate and we realized that if they would have not done the things we told them to do on those five years which they did by the way they would have basically be out of business because there were things that happened in those five years that exactly affected the areas that we told them to fix. And if they literally would have not followed our advice, this major United States institution will not exist today the way it is. Hmm. So, I mean, again, it's it's hard to explain what we went through for, to come up with that plan. A lot of a lot of estimates, a lot of things based on data, but it, it makes you feel that you were able to protect a very large institution with a lot of data that otherwise would not exist today. It would be a major chaos for, for the U.S. So that's a, I think that's one of the best examples that I have in terms of my career, something rewarding um, that I can give you. I wish I could give you the name. No, 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 of course not. No worries. No worries. Uh, yeah. Are, are there any, um, you know, so at least, uh, you know, so every profession has their, their go-to story. You know, like I'm sure that every profession has their titanic like their biggest disaster that everybody knows their cautionary tale that yep maybe if we build this ship maybe we should have enough lifeboats uh are there any titanics in the industry that you can you know famous that not your customers <laughs> that maybe you can go deeper in detail in terms of like catastrophes like things that happened that we just went wrong or just in terms of uh, cyber attacks that you know like maybe people can relate yeah, so I, I think one of the biggest threats that I think I faced with some of my clients was back in 2013, like right when I was kind of beginning my career. Um, there were, during that year, there was something that was kind of famous called, I don't know if you if you heard of this, but it was called the Crypto Locker. It was mm -hmm. a really famous virus. Uh, basically, what this virus would do was that it would basically go and encrypt your, your hard drive. And it it's it's actually it's actually known as a ransomware. So the if, for people who don't know this, if you think of a malware, ransomwares are kind of the new kid on the block. These are things that are essentially sort of new in in the cyberspace. It's not something that has been around for too long. And what it does basically is that it goes into your computer, it encrypts your data, and it essentially holds your files hostage, mm -hmm. meaning that you have your computer physically with you, mm -hmm. but you have you don't have any access to your files. Unless you pay the hacker an amount of money, whatever he wants, maybe it's $300, maybe it's $5,000, depending on what data he got a hold of. 
So these ransomwares were for a while, and I think even today it's still a big threat, but they were basically getting a whole of data from small to medium-sized companies, and they were basically demanding, you know, $50,000. If you don't give me $50,000, we will basically delete the data or throw away the encryption key and take you out of business. Luckily for a lot of companies, they had backups of the data. So they said, you know what, you can do whatever you want with that. Uh, but at the end of the day, I can go back and look at my backups. I'm fine. However, there were some companies who did not potentially do it or do backups when they needed to, and they were affected because they had to pay money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this crypto locker virus, the guy who created it, which at the end, I think this specific one, he he was caught. He who would have made money in Bitcoin because you know they couldn't trace it and all that stuff. <coughs> um, but he made like thirty million dollars, like in, in a year, just basically doing this type of stuff. To companies, <laughs> he would just go scary people for, that work for companies and demand money. So. I saw a few of my clients affected by this. Uh, I saw a lot of peers, uh, you know, who dealt with clients that were going through this. Um, but luckily, at least the crypto locker one uh, no longer exists. But there's similar ones out there today that people are trying to defend themselves from. So, so I I must ask this uh, because okay, great, you have a backup. Uh, hopefully, it's air gapped, you know, so it's not connected to the internet at all. And um, but how does the regular listener protect themselves uh, again you know we all hear those regular it advice that hey change your password every two months or stuff like that but what, what can we really do you know to stay safe no, that's a good question so the first thing i would do i would define the three major types of attacks that you can get first if you understand that then you understand how do you protect yourself so i think the biggest type of attack that most people get are what's called phishing, right? P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G. Mm-hmm. So phishing is basically a type of social engineering attack where somebody pretends, somebody creates an email or a website that is not a real website, right? You get an email from Apple saying, oh, by the way, it's been 90 days, your password must be changed. Come in here into this website that looks exactly like Apple's website, put your username and password, and it's gonna be automatically changed. This is literally a, you know, a way for hackers to have your username and credentials. And as soon as you enter that data, they will use that data to go into your actual Apple account, change your username and password, and then use that to their advantage, whether it's buying things or, or, or stealing things from you. But, but these types of attacks are in the rise. You know, a lot of people, older people especially, mm-hmm. get emails with something that looks exactly like their bank. You know, it's literally an email that says, it's Citibank, you know. We've lost your password. Please come in, or, or you know, or it's been ninety days. There might be some fraud in your account. Come in and log in. And you know, if you're not skeptical, you really will fall for these things. And anybody can fall for these things, by the way. Even us could mm-hmm. potentially think it's actually our bank and click on something, and which will automatically compromise your your system. How do you protect yourself from these things? It's very easy, actually. A lot of times, when a hacker creates, let's say, a fake website or a fake email. Typically, what you can do is you can check the, you know, when you get an email, it says to and from. Mm-hmm. Typically, the from email will, will have a, you know, apple.com or whatever. It will have an actual email. What hackers typically do is they misspell a word. It looks almost exactly the same because there's always something that's different. And it, usually, for the most part, most hackers don't care. But it's pretty obvious for if you, if you don't see Apple, but you see Apple with a D, a D, and Apple, you know, it's not Apple. So the first way to protect yourself is always check the sender who, who sent you the email and whether mm. that ID looks real or not. If you have a suspicion that the ID is not real, but you still want to kind of bear, you don't want to click on it, but you still want to make sure that maybe you need to, you might need to change your password. 
you can always contact the company directly and they will actually usually tell you like, yeah, we didn't send you any emails or you know, usually a bank will, will know if, if something really happened. But but I would say always check the sender uh, ID, like where did it come from? See, Look for any typos. And then if you're still not comfortable with that, if you feel like, well, I'm still not sure, just call the company directly. Got it. That's the most common attack that we see. And, you know, it happens, it, you know, it can, attack, it can affect anybody. We all get emails. We all get things. That yeah, we, click we, on. we all get that uh, IRS phone call. Yeah. The March time frame that uh, you owe $10,000. Uh, you know, give us the money now or they will go, will go to your house, arrest you. Like Exactly. And, and it's really sad, man, that like people take advantage of uh, seniors, especially people that. And also, you know, like recent immigrants, too. People that don't know the their rights and how things work, like the IRS will only contact you via a snail mail. Exactly. And, and exactly. that's it. And that's it. Exactly. No, yeah. And, you know, the ones you're talking about, it's called smishing. It's when you get a call from somebody and they pretend to be, oh, we're your bank, give you this. Those are also on the rise. So you do have to know mm. and make sure that you don't give anybody any information unless you are you know for sure it's your bank or it's you know apple or whichever company you're dealing with got it and those are the most typical ones very okay, so you the, mentioned there were three uh, so I, I was gonna say the the three main ones obviously oh, there's gotcha. a lot but yeah so so that's what i call phishing slash social engineering right those are the ones where somebody pretends to be someone who they're not you fall for their trap you give them your credentials you give me your credit card your social security number and then they use that to you know do different kinds of fraud the second big one that, that you will see sort of in our field is what we call malware attacks, right? So for malware attacks, there's a lot of examples like the one I gave you, uh, CryptoLocker, right? Which was uh, basically a ransomware type. But there's a lot of different types. You have spyware, you have different things. But what it is, is basically malicious code that gets injected in your computer to do things that you don't want your computer to do. For example, it could send data to somebody about you know your credentials for, for your bank, or it could send your files to somebody it could do something that will potentially harm your computer. It could also shut it down. Um, a good example of malware that we're seeing today in the year 2020 is that you see a lot of people, including younger people that are very tech savvy, they think that if you go to the app store or they think if you go to you know any of these stores that you can download apps, they think every single app out there is safe. And the answer is it's not true, right? You can go into the app store and if you download an app that came from a shady developer, there is a chance that that app can come with malicious malware mm -hmm. that could potentially compromise your phone. And you don't realize it because you think, oh, it's in the app store. It must be safe. It probably went through, you know, security checks. Right. It's not always the case. So you could be downloading an app, again, that has malware that will potentially, you know, compromise your phone or send data to a third party that, that you don't want that data to go to. And I know what you're probably thinking. You're like, okay, how do I protect myself from these things? It's actually easier than you think. Mm -hmm. I would say there's two, three ways you can protect yourself as well. Number one, make sure that you always have the latest patch on your phone. If you know, if iOS, we're iOS 13 or whatever the one we are today, mm -hmm. um, make sure that you are up to date with that because the reason why we have different patches on your phone is because they found flaws that can be exploited. So the number one way to protect yourself from these things is always patch your phone with the latest thing that gets released or your computer or you know mm -hmm. whatever technology or your IoT device. That's number one way to protect yourself. Number two, always download apps from trusted developers. Um, you know, there's websites out there that you can check to see who they are, you know, yeah. whether they're popular or not. You can also check the reviews, right? If you yeah, see an app. I, I was going to say, like, the it's almost uh, an impulse. The first thing I do when I'm going to download an app just to try it out, I always read the reviews and I make sure that the, the developer looks legit. Exactly. In the sense that it's not a... 
again, the reviews will tell you usually like nine times out of 10. And if it doesn't have any reviews, I don't touch it. Exactly. That's exactly right. It's a good sign, right? So if you see an app that has one review or five reviews, I would, unless you absolutely need it, I wouldn't download the app because there's a chance that it was developed with, you know, you know, it wasn't following the leading developing practices like right. SDLC and all that stuff. So yeah, check reviews, check who's the developer, make sure your phone is up to date with the latest patch, make sure your computer is up to date with the latest software update. Those are things you can do to protect yourself. There's always a chance that you can still have the latest, you know, patch in your phone and, and you download an app that happens to have a zero day attack, meaning that it hasn't been discovered. That can always happen. Say that again. How do you say that? It's too? called a zero day attack. Zero day. Oh, okay. Like a patient zero kind of thing. Like it just. Exactly. This is the first time we see this exactly. virus. Okay. Exactly. Gotcha. And that could happen, right? Because obviously there's a lot of zero day attacks, things that we've never seen that. And that's how actually what we continue to patch things, right? Cause you'll find these things yeah. you're like, okay, these here's this type of attack. Let's go ahead and the next version. We'll, we'll make sure that this flaw has been fixed. It's funny. Cause I find that very scary, but also very exciting at the same time. It's like, man, it's a virus. Nobody has ever seen before. Exactly. And it happens every day. There's zero day attacks yeah. every day. Uh, and you know, and every day we learn something new in our field and we try to make sure that we fix it. Um, I know we don't look care about dates in this podcast, yeah, but yeah, yeah. In, no in, this, in this week, there's a recent article that came out about talking about Jeff Bezos phone being hacked. You know, they hired a consulting firm. They kind of looked into the phone, you know, they did some forensics and they realized that it was actually related to a WhatsApp conversation that he had with the Saudi Arabia prince. And like, there was a video that they exchanged and there's a chance that the video had some malware a code in the video that was essentially sending data from Jeff Bezos' phone to that um, third party or, or that hacker. Um, they're still investigating because part of the problem was that the data, the data in WhatsApp is actually encrypted. But it just tells you, I mean, if Jeff Bezos' phone can be compromised, you know, <laughs> anyone's phones can be compromised, right? So yeah. you're not safe from these things. You do have to be, take precautions to make sure you're not yeah. caught off guard. I mean, I mean, if, if uh, Zuckerberg has a, you know, some tape on his webcam. I have some tape on my webcam as well. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, you know, about a month ago, there were, you know, reports of people saying that their camera, their security cameras at home were compromised. There was a video. I don't know if you saw this, but there was a girl in a room and that somebody from the internet was talking through the camera to the girl. And, and this video actually became viral. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Anything can be hacked. You know, IoT devices, typically people who buy them, they don't understand technology. They yeah. just want to have a camera in their home. Yeah. And I show you the numbers, right? Like some people listen to this under Alexa. Yeah. <laughs> I was <laughs> maybe, surprised. Maybe, maybe you are listening to this on your Alexa right now. So <laughs> that's uh, that's interesting to me. Like to me, like podcasting is uh, headphones and a walk kind of thing. But uh, hey, if you're cooking and listening to Alexa, well, more, more power to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No. So... So, you know, again, those are ways you can protect yourself. But those are, the, I would say, you know, when, when it comes to social engineering, which includes phishing or smishing, which is phishing is more on the email, you know, physical or virtual thing versus smishing is when you get phone calls. Those are very typical ones that people fall for. Then you have the malware type, which are, again, there's different types, but that's also a very common one. Mm -hmm. But there's other ones. There's a physical security attack where somebody pretends and goes into a facility, you know, tailgating somebody, you know, there's, there's other ways. And there's other more sophisticated ways of getting into systems. But I would say for the most part, the majority of viruses and things you see out there mm -hmm. can probably fall in one of those two categories. Got it. That's awesome. That's awesome. I, I saw this thing that uh, some security companies like uh, like McAfee or what have you, they will hire 
actors to play out social engineering scenarios to train their employees. So to actually walk them to, okay, so when somebody talks to you this way or uh, beware, you know, like they are trying to get some information out of you. They're trying to uh, maybe get some code, some information that they shouldn't have. So Yeah, and that's, all, that's something that we actually advise companies to do, right? So we have a, cyber, a good cybersecurity program should have a cyber awareness campaign. And typically what that means is essentially teaching people about these ways that people can get hacked. And in some cases, you might want to even test it, see if people actually fall for it. So sometimes companies internally, they will send fake emails yep, with I, fake links. Yep. And if you I, click on them, it will tell you, you fell for this phishing mm-hmm, campaign. Please mm-hmm. retake this training. And it's it's a pretty annoying process for people, but it's a way for you to learn to learn these things, right? Yeah. And, and in my case, uh, I fell for one of those and it was pretty <laughs> impressive how they did it. They actually misspelled my manager's name. They made it look like an email from my manager. And that's what a real hacker would do. And I'm like, uh, oh, yeah, it's like, bah, bah. click, oh, you've been assigned this uh, cybersecurity training for two hours. <laughs> like, oh, my God, I fell for it. It's <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's pretty easy. But it worked, right? Like, uh, that will happen only once. So. Yeah, it's, again, all it takes is one email that you click on something and it compromises your entire system. I mean, you have to really know what you're doing. And you sometimes you're tired. You just, oh, okay, I'm going to click on this. And, you know, just like that, you can compromise your entire company. That's why it's so risky. Um, I felt really bad because we do a lot of these campaigns as well. And one test that we do is that we actually go into a company physically, we tailgate behind somebody and we drop flash drives that had SQL injections, right? So you have all this, like, for example, you drop a flash drive in the kitchen, right? And typically you have a good Samaritan that goes into the kitchen. It's like, oh, look, somebody dropped a flash drive. Let me go into my computer and plug it in to see if I can find the owner and actually give it to that person. Oh my gosh. When they plug it in to be nice, it's an actual, I mean, obviously it's us. So we're trying to train people. But you shouldn't just plug in a drive a USB that you find on on you know on the floor mm. into your computer by no means because a hacker could literally do that. They could drop it in the main door of a building before you walk in and just to make it look like somebody dropped it. And that's exactly how they get into your system. Uh, if you study a pretty well-known virus called Stuxnet, S-T-U-X-N-E-T, basically through you through flash drives, that's how they were able to get into an Iran nuclear plant and basically shut it down. You know, literally, <laughs> you know, nuclear plants are air gap. They're not, they don't actually connect it to the internet, but it doesn't mean it's, you know, it's still subject to human error, right? Somebody grabbing a flash drive and bringing it in and doing certain things. So it is a, another technique that a hacker could use to basically get into your environment. Even if you think you're protected from the internet, right? You can still have a good Samaritan plug in something and get your entire network compromised. That's how, that's how, how, yeah. how much it takes. Yeah. So if you see a USB drive on the floor, um, pick it up, but. Put it on the lost and found. Uh, don't, plug, don't plug it into your computer. I mean, it looks... Uh... Yeah, I would say bring it to the IT help desk. Typically, what they would do, a good practice, is plug it into a computer that it's basically a sandbox environment, not connected to the internet, mm-hmm. and they can see whether it's safe or not. And, and they will be the ones who can basically give it to the person. If it's a true USB that somebody dropped, they can give it to that person. Or if it's a virus, they can basically figure out who was, and they can do all the forensics that they need to do. Right. But if it's a USB drive that looks weird and it has a little note that says, give it to the CEO, <laughs> don't, don't trust it. You know, don't don't trust it. Just let it go. Exactly. Give it to the IT guys. And it's funny because we were talking before starting recording, we were talking about uh, TikTok and the uh, other things that, you know, the fact that you don't know where that data is hosted. Um, you don't know. Uh, like uh, legally, guess what? 
there's no loss. It's China. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who knows what they're doing with with that data? Like, and and a lot of people don't know that TikTok is a Chinese enterprise, right? But it's uh, yeah. So I think there's actually a class action lawsuit happening right now here in California uh, because a student from I believe San Diego and uh, again. Please don't send me hate mail if I get this wrong. But uh, there's a class action lawsuit because she was trying out the app. And you know how there's like a drafts function in your email that you can draft something but not send it out? Uh, she drafted a couple of TikTok videos and she didn't publish them. And she actually deleted the app. And then some months later, she opened it again. And then she went in and her stuff had been posted. So it's like, wait, I, I don't control this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah. So there's a class action lawsuit, and uh, and again, you know, there's this whole, there's even a bill in Congress, right? A, a, a project uh, to um, look into it and actually ban it from uh, U.S. government personnel uh, devices, because uh, again, it's dangerous, right? You don't know where that data is going. Yeah. No, it's exactly right. And you know, luckily, a lot of governments have are basically aware of these situations and. There's been a lot of improvements, especially in Europe with privacy, right? They created the GDPR laws, which essentially is a set of laws that protect consumers from getting their data, right? If, if there's a, there's a, that set of laws or principles says that if somebody stores your data in Europe and you want that data to be deleted, they actually have to go in and delete it. So there's things that protect the consumer, um, which yeah. is very important. And also if you request a copy of your data, they have to give it to you. They have to give it to you. So, exactly. so if, if I request a copy, hey, Zuckerberg, I want a copy of my Facebook and then I want you to delete it. Okay. You have to comply. Uh, you have to give them everything. And, and it's all thanks to all these laws that are coming out that, you know, are, and, you know, if companies don't follow these laws, there's significant fines, right? For these things. And, and now in California, there's a new one that's called the CCPA, which is the California Consumer Product Privacy Act, um, and you know it's it's fairly new. You know it's kind of it's been established over the past few years now, um, but you know we're starting to see more and more governments at the federal level or even at the state level create some sort of privacy rules that, to make sure companies are you know doing the right thing. So yeah. it TikTok it's a great example of of uh, exactly an app that I wouldn't personally use because you know they don't adhere to any of these laws. They're all out of China where. You know, there's basically no privacy. So that's why you need to be very careful where you decide to store your data. It's a very important thing. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and I think it comes down to the the power of personal choice. You know, like uh, if you decide to use uh, XYZ app, you know, it's your call. But uh, at least be aware that these things happen. So, you know, you don't get taken advantage of because of, you know, something that you did, uh, you know, haphazardly. You know, clicking on something you shouldn't, downloading something you shouldn't. So um, keeping that in mind, I'm wondering, you know, if we can touch a little bit on the, you know, how do you learn these things? Because uh, I find that uh, there's this perspective that, okay, let me, I'm going to go for college and to study computer science. Oh, but wait, maybe I just need to get some certifications on this. So how do you navigate that? You know, uh, you know like that getting a master's degree on cybersecurity or getting some certifications on that? That's a, that's a great question. And, you know, I do a lot of conferences in different universities, Notre Dame, you know, Creighton University and so forth. And that's typically the question I get from students, like, how do I do it? Should I go for a master's and specialize in cybersecurity? Should I get certifications? Should I just buy a book and read things on my own? Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a combination of all of them. I don't think there's a right solution for everybody. Everybody has a different way of learning. 
Um, I mentioned the labs because I think those are great ways for people to get exposed to these things in a test environment and you, you're able to basically learn how to react to these things. I think that's a great way for, for people who want to be more on the detection side of, of cybersecurity. But in terms of, of general, maybe even the area that I'm on, which is more on the strategy side, I would say certifications are a great way of, of getting a lot of the main knowledge that you need because with certification number one, they're typically pretty broad, meaning that you can learn a little bit about every domain. You can learn about, you know, how to how to uh, look at cybersecurity from a governance perspective. You know, who's the CISO? What are, what is the CISO should be doing? You know, how to look at cybersecurity from a technology perspective. Right? What are the things that you know I need to have in place to make sure my data remains confidential? To make make sure that I maintain my integrity, availability, all the basics of that. And the third thing I would say is that a good certification also gives you credibility in the market, right? So when you read a book on your own, typically there's not a good way for you to prove that you read the book or you know you have the knowledge, but having that certification on your name shows that you basically passed the exam, which shows that you have the knowledge. Um, is there one that everybody should get or like an entry level one? So there is one that I actually personally have myself that in fact, there are some jobs in the cybersecurity space. They don't let you into the job unless you have the certification. So it actually opens the door for a lot of these jobs, which is called the CISSP. C-I-S-S-P. Got it. Certify Information Systems Security Professional. And what it is, it gives you a pretty ground. It's not super deep or technical. There are There's a lot of technical stuff in this certification. Um, I believe there's about 12 domains. I can't remember the exact number of domains, but... You in order for you to get certified, you have to pass each domain of the exam. So if you basically pass all domains except for one, you don't, you don't, you do not get certified. Mm. So that's what makes it so hard to get. A lot of people, you know, don't pass these exams the first time, and it happens very often. But when you when somebody has a certification, you know they've excelled in each of the domains. So network security, application security, you know, governance. So that's why it's so important to have this certificate. That's the one I have. One of the ones I have. I actually have three, um, and that's one of the ones that, like I said, a job will specifically say you should have. You know, the CISSP. Yeah. Is is this something that like somebody can get while they're in college? Is this yeah. something that? Uh, okay. So so um, let me clarify this because uh, the CISSP, besides passing the exam, they also require years of experience. However, the organization that provides this certification called ISC squared have come up with, I think it's called the associate CSP or something like that, where you can basically take it while you're in college and you still get sort of the associate title of the CSP. Um, so there's ways you can still pass the exam. You might not get the title, the certification. You might get that maybe after a couple of years of, of work experience, but there, there's definitely ways for you to get up to the level where once you graduate, you at least have the associate title, of this certification. And then after the two years of experience, then you get the actual title of the certification. Um, there's another one that kind of competes with the CISSP called the CISM, the Certified Information Systems Manager or Information Security Manager, I believe. Um, it's provided by a different organization called ISACA. Um, it's sort of similar. A lot of organizations look into the CISP or the CISM. They're kind of at the same level. Um, so it's also another one that people, I, that, I, I don't personally have that one, but it's another one that I know a lot of my peers have and, and, and you know, have used for their, mm -hmm. for their jobs. Um, there, there, I mean, there's a lot of them. There's one called certified ethical hacker, right? That's typically a little bit more technical. Let, 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 let's double down on that a little bit because, uh, no, thank you for sharing that, but I'm wondering like ethical hacking 
Uh, <laughs> a, a lot of us saw a Mr. Robot. <laughs> do you see Mr. Robot? Yes, I've and, seen it. Gotcha. What do you think of Mr. Robot? I mean, it's a great show. I mean, not everything they say is factual, but it, it is a great show. <laughs> and they do say a lot of things that could happen to people. So Yeah, I, I just love the... I love the social engineering aspect of, of things and like the fact that like, oh yeah, like, uh, let's find out who this person is. Oh, they're married and their wife is pregnant. Okay. I'm going to pretend that the, there's an emergency phone call that, oh, she's in labor now. Yeah. Yeah. I just love that social engineering aspect <laughs> of it. Just, wow. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's amazing. But, uh, that's the dark side. How about the ethical hacking side? What, what, what is that? What does that look like? Yeah. So Besides, so the Certified Ethical Hacker certification, it's basically a certification that gives you the basics of how to hack a system, but it does it with the intent that you'll use it for a good cause, right? You wouldn't, there's something called the white hat hackers and the black hat hackers, right? So the white hat people are the good people. They're basically there to protect companies. They're the ones, they're sort of policing your information security assets. And then you have the black hat hacker, which is somebody who's in the dark web, you know, trying to steal your identity, trying to do all these things. So, you know, in terms of ethical hacker, you always need, it's like, it's like, it's like a, a country. You always need policemen and you always, you're always going to have fees, but you always need somebody to protect yourself. So that's what ethical hacking is. You need people who pretend to be the bad guys and they attempt to enter your company. So I'll, I'll, if I'm a white hack, hacker, what I would do is I'll say, hey, look, you'll pay me, let's say $10. I'm going to basically try to hack your company. And if I do... Then I'll show you how I did it. In that way, you can protect yourselves from that specific area. And when a real bad person comes, they wouldn't be able to get in because they might actually follow what I just did. Mm -hmm. So ethical hacking is essentially helping companies basically practice with people that are good before a real bad person comes in and tries to steal their data. And it is important. We need it. We need people who who are have the capabilities and the skills, but they use them for a good reason or a good purpose. That's what it is. And that's why you have... This certification, that's why you have people that do this for a living. It's actually called penetration testing. They actually try to go in and hack different things. There's something called the bag, bug bounty program. If you find a flaw and you report this to, let's say, companies like Apple and so forth, they might actually pay you money because you found something in their systems. And I think Apple said recently that in their latest operating system, they'll pay somebody a million dollars if they can hack it. So now you have all these people just trying to go in and see if they yeah. can. And if they can, they'll get paid. A lot of people actually have made millions of dollars just doing this for a living. There's a guy who's, I think 25, there was an article about him. He's worth, I think, $40 million because all he does is this. This is what he does for a living. He goes into companies like Apple, shows them how he hacked a specific product, and then helps them basically fix it. There's red teams, purple teams, blue teams. It gets very fun and very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, great. No, th thank you so much, Diego. Uh, you know, so I think we covered you know the careers, how you get into cybersecurity, certifications, attacks, how to stay safe. Um, I'm wondering if we can move to practical wisdom, and maybe that time that you got to have dinner with Warren Buffett. <laughs> you know, like, uh, what's the best advice that they've given you? You know, it can be career uh, oriented, can be more like a personal oriented. But like, what's the best career advice that you've gotten so far in your journey? Yeah, I think I, I would say there's been a couple of things that I've received through my life that I kind of changed the way I look at things. I would say number one is if you're sitting in a room 
and you are the smartest person in the room, you're basically in the wrong place. That's one of the best things that somebody has ever told me. And I take that very seriously because what I've seen, at least myself through my experience, is that when I'm learning the most, it's typically when I'm in an environment where everybody else around me is smarter than me, basically. That's the, that's the way I can push myself across my limits. That's the way I can really learn things that I wasn't expecting to learn. Whereas I've also been in situations where maybe I'm the most senior person in the room, maybe I'm the person that knows the most, and I, re- I find myself basically stuck. You know, I feel like I'm not growing. I'm not. So with that advice in mind, through my career um, and doing cybersecurity for, for my firm, I basically always try to put myself in situations where I'm not the smartest person in the room. So that's actually the reason why I came to Silicon Valley. You know, I felt that the clients I was helping before, I got to a point where I felt I was, I don't want to say this, but I felt I was more very comfortable. I felt I knew everything right mm-hmm. at that point. But I've realized that at least in Silicon Valley for my space, there's a lot of things that are up and coming. You know, you have new technologies, you have artificial intelligence, blockchain, you have all these things that are fairly new. So I wanted to put myself in this position. I wanted to be exposed to the latest and greatest things out there. So I so basically I can be ahead of, of the curve. So that to me, that's the best advice I can give somebody. Always put yourself in a company, in a work environment, even with your friends. Always try to make sure you surround yourself with people that know more than you, either in a technical subject, uh, social, whatever you want to call it. That To me, that's probably the best thing I could give people. Uh, I think your other question was about, just you asked me about what's the best advice and then just conventional wisdom in terms of... Yeah, no, you, you answered it perfectly. You answered it perfectly. I think that, uh, you know, being comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? That's the that's the motto that a lot of people used to live by. And, and guess what? It works. It works. It, it, it works. That's why I'm a huge fan of um, rotational programs. Uh, some companies, uh, I was actually part of one at, at my actual, at my current job. And uh, a lot of companies have this idea of, uh, guess what? You know, this uh, millennial generation, Gen Z, uh, they they have this uh, idea that, hey, they get bored really easily. And that's not true. Uh, it's more about they actually, and we, like I include myself there, is that we need to be constantly learning something and be engaged in order to deliver value. So we actually need to be, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uncomfortable learning new stuff. And we need to know why we're doing it. So I'll give you an example. Uh, if somebody asked me that, hey, you go, I need you to go through this uh, list of uh, 250 customers and uh, call every single one of them to confirm their address. And I'm going to look at you like you have uh, five eyes in your face. Because uh, like, wait, why is this for? Like, what is like? You know, so like uh, essentially like uh, it's not that I'm not challenging you. I'm just saying I just want to know like, hey, what's the ultimate goal? Maybe I can figure out a way of doing this faster. <laughs> Maybe I can write a script that pulls out data from Intellius and just grabs the stuff. Exactly. Uh, so again, you know, so, so rotational programs are a huge thing now. And I love it because they give you an idea to learn from a different part of the business every six months or nine months. Uh, I have a mentee. Uh, shout out to Joel. He's actually in a rotation program at the GE, and he gets to move uh, not only different business units, but also different places. So he's been in Boston. He's been in New Orleans. Uh, I'm trying to convince him to come out here to California, but, you know, he, you know, again, 
that's where he wants us to stay. Uh, so it's uh, it's essentially, you know, like an opportunity. So just embrace it. You know, embrace change. It's not going anywhere. Exactly. Yeah, and somebody actually gave me a good example of how to understand this concept of, you know, always being yourself, surround yourself with people that are better than you. But somebody said, you know, if you go into a race, right, let's say you're in a track race, running in, in, in a circles, and you're basically running against people that are slower than you, you will always win. That's, that's probably true, right? They're slower than you, you're going to run and you're going to swing. But if you go into this exact same race, but you're running against people that, that are faster than you, you might not win the race, but your time will be better. And what's more important, winning the race or making sure that you can run the fastest you can? It depends on, the, on what the outcome is, but, but if you, re- like over time, that person who's running against people that are faster than them is gonna make himself or herself run faster mm-hmm. and their time will be better. And at some point when they run against normal people, maybe they're always gonna win. So that's that concept you can apply to business. Always run yourself with people that can run faster, faster than you so you can learn from them. And the other thing I would say is, if you are not breaking things, you're not running fast enough, right? So if you're not making mistakes, it means that you're probably not in an area that is uncomfortable to you. You're probably too comfortable and that's why you're not making mistakes. So making mistakes is totally okay. And that's a good indication that you're in a place where you're still learning things because it means that you don't know everything, right? So to me, that's the core concept of my life, right? That's how I I strategically think about my career. Where am I gonna place myself in the next few years? I think I mentioned to you this before we started this podcast. I'm currently studying for a cloud security certification, right? That, that I came across because I feel that the cloud security space is growing significantly and I feel that I'm falling behind. So, you know, you always want to make sure you're challenging yourself. And, and one of the reasons why I'm studying for this is because I have a lot of peers that have it, right? Yeah. So I don't want to be the only one who doesn't have it. I want to be exactly. at their level. But if I was in a, in a company or in a situation where nobody cares and nobody has these things, I might say, you know what? Nobody else has this. Why would I, why would I get it? Yeah, but again, because I'm surrounded by people that are constantly like challenging themselves and looking for new things, I'm in the same mode where I need to like, well, if they're doing it, I need to do it. I don't want to fall behind. Yeah, you need to move fast and like execute on exactly. it. Exactly. And uh, and I and I love the fact that you shared with me that uh, you know it's like a 4K or something, four thousand dollars, something like that. And it's, it's like crazy. A, and it's a uh, hey, it's skin in the game. Exactly. Skin in the game. It's like uh, um, I used to do this thing, so I had, uh, and I still have this issue sometimes with procrastination that I have uh, 300 things that I want to do, but I need to focus on one. Uh, so I started doing this thing that I actually, I'll go to Starbucks, it's two blocks from here, and I'll go with my laptop, but I won't bring my charger with me. Because I know that, you know what, the battery is running out. So I need to focus on these <laughs> two things that I need to do. You know what, Not to th- this one thing. And then I can, you know, go on Reddit or whatever. Uh, but but yeah, so it's like little tricks, little things that can help you focus on doing the one thing, getting your job done. Uh, and I think that I love the fact that, you know, putting yourself, surround yourself with people better than you, but also making sure that you are better uh, compared to the person you were last week, exactly. last month, last quarter, last year. Uh, so that idea of having that yearly review of like, uh, okay, this year, this uh, 2019, what are the three things I'm proudest of? Uh, what are the three things that made me the happiest? Uh, what are the three things that I messed up or opportunities that I have to learn? And just having that, you know, sitting down a couple hours thinking about it and you only have to do it once. Uh, and then guess what? You'll do it next year. 
exactly. <laughs> and you exactly. and you and you learn right and you get better every year so no i agree and you know the the more strategic you can be with yourself you know if you if you're the type of person who at the beginning of the years do the resolutions i think a lot of people do that you you yeah. were recently talking about that in mm-hmm. one of your instagram accounts and one of your podcasts but if you really like when you write things down you're more likely able like when you see things on paper it's typically more likely that you'll do them than if you think about them right so what i do is at the beginning of every week i write down on a piece of paper the things i need to complete by the end of the week and you know i'm like i'm an old school person like i will scratch them through so i know like i finished something it gives me like accomplishment but yeah but it helps i mean you have to find ways that work for you yeah and you know it's the only way to stay ahead and, and like you said you're not competing with other people really you're competing with yourself mm-hmm. like, that's the only person you got to be better than use yourself and as long as you're learning something every day or every week or, or every month that's how you know you're still growing and progressing and if you feel that you're not make sure that you make decisions today that will put you in a place where you will be growing every day every week or every month and and i think that's to me that's the best advice that anybody can get because people get comfortable you know they get their first job they're doing three things they get comfortable they're happy with their pay but in reality they're not growing you know and mm-hmm. if they're not they're in 10 15 years they're going to be stuck in a place they don't they don't enjoy and their job opportunities out there might be limited because they never took a chance on learning other things so so i think that's a anybody entering the the workspace should always keep that in mind you are a student for life you mm-hmm. should always be learning no matter what yeah that's awesome. No, Diego, uh, thank you so much. Um, anything else you'd like to add? No, I think this is great. Thanks for having me. Always happy to be here in Silicon Valley. And <laughs> hopefully we can continue to do some of these in the future. Yeah, so. my, my pleasure. My pleasure. We can talk about the whole uh, working out of your house four days a week, <laughs> <laughs> which blows my mind. The fact that you live in Chicago and you work in Silicon Valley four days a week, every week. <laughs> yeah, people don't understand my lifestyle, and and I know we talked about talked about this in our other podcast in Spanish, but there's a saying that my my mom says, which is that when something something is uncomfortable, until you get used to it, right? So mm. at the beginning of me working here in Silicon Valley and just traveling every week, taking a five hour flight every Monday and every Thursday, it was a little uncomfortable. You know, I was like, ah, uh, I don't know how do how do I feel about this. But I've done it for so long now, it's been a long time since I've been doing this work, that I'm basically used to it. Like once you get used to something, it's not uncomfortable anymore. I'm on a flight and I can fall asleep within five minutes. Or I, I know how to work in a flight because I've done it so much. I'm in a hotel and I already have my, my places where I go to, like to, to study or to, to do work. So you can, no matter what in life, you can always adjust yourself to, to be happy in that situation. So. It is tough. It's tougher than most lifestyles. The people that go to job nine to five and they have time to go home and do normal things. I don't get to do that. But at the same time, it is very rewarding. There are other benefits that you get out of this life, which is you can, you know, go to other places during the weekend, maybe visit family in other states. You know, there's other things, other perks that you get yeah. from, from living gotcha. this lifestyle. Yeah, so. no, we, we'll do a, a, the life of a consultant you know, for <laughs> next episode. Awesome. I know there's so much to talk about. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this yeah. is exciting. So awesome. thanks for having me. No, thanks so much, Diego. All right, thank you. Thank you.